welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. This episode is my fifth in a mini-series focusing on the scholarship of the 2019 Sacred Rights Cohort. Sacred Rights provides support, resources, and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I highly recommend checking out their fantastic work on Twitter at sacred underscore rights or online at sacred-rights.org. A hadith in Islam reads, Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. In these words, the scholarship of Dr. Kayla Wheeler is grounded where she explores the intersections of fashion, Islam, and black women. Dr. Wheeler is an expert in contemporary black Islam in the United States. Dr. Wheeler is writing a book on the history of black Muslim fashion in the United States. The book is based on five years of research, including interviewing black Muslim fashion designers and attending fashion shows in Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Newark. Dr. Wheeler is also the creator of the Black Islam Syllabus, a free resource guide which we discuss at length in the conversation that highlights the experiences of Muslims of African descent. If you want to extend your learning after this conversation, Dr. Wheeler's work is linked in the show notes, and she also recommends two organizations supporting the work of Muslim scholarship, justice, and anti-racism work. Those organizations are Sapelo Square and Muslim Anti-Racist Collaborative. Sapelo Square intervenes in the marginalization and erasure of black Muslims in the public square by building an online forum that places black Muslims at the center. Their mission is to celebrate and analyze the experiences of black Muslims in the United States to create new understandings of who they are, what they have done, and why that matters. You can find and support Sapelo Square at sapelosquare.com. Furthermore, the Muslim Anti-Racist Collaborative's mission is to provide racial justice education and resources to advance racial justice. You can find and support their work at muslimarc.org. So this was a very fantastic conversation with Dr. Kayla Wheeler. So without further delay, please enjoy my chat on Black Islam, the Black Islam syllabus, and the work of Dr. Kayla Wheeler with Sacred Rights. Dr. Kayla Wheeler, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is a delight to have you. I am wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit. Yes. So I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm currently an assistant professor and my area of expertise is Black Islam in the United States. Awesome. Okay. So uh, in reviewing your work the last couple of weeks, I've noticed that you are interested in Islamic studies and fashion studies. And I love hearing about this. This is so cool. I'm curious how you got interested in each of those fields separately. And then I'm curious how they merged together along your academic journey. Like, what were your academic stepping stones and turning points along the way with these two fields? So I have a very long academic journey. Um, 
<laughs> it's I got my bachelor's degree in religious studies and political science, and I thought I was going to be a foreign service worker. The world changed, realized that was not mm. going to happen. <laughs> I decided to get um, some background in bioethics, so I got um, a master's degree in that, and then eventually got a history degree and finally a PhD. And during that entire time, what I noticed, regardless of what my minor or major was or area of focus, I was committed to studying and learning about Black women, particularly Black Muslim women's experiences, and hearing their stories and sharing them with other people. So. My journey might not be the most cohesive, but for me, all of these degrees, all of the experiences I have allowed me to tell a fuller story of what it's like to be a Black Muslim woman, especially in the United States. Mm. So the fashion aspect, it's always been something that I've loved. I grew up in a very, very fashionable family. One of my favorite hobbies with my grandma is to go shopping. Mm. And I found studying Black Muslim women a lot of times what stood out to me first about them was their clothing, how they looked, how they dressed, how they carried themselves. And probably one of my favorite hadiths is um, in English, it's Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. So mm. for me, it seemed to be a natural fit to look at Islam and fashion. And if you look at a lot of stuff that's written about Muslim women, it's focusing on like the veil and air quotes. And I wanted to do something a bit more um, expansive to not just talk about women's motivations for dressing in a certain way, but what meaning do they get from that? How does dress look differently across regions and race? Um, and then what do they do with dress, um, the business aspect of that? So that's how I got here. Fantastic. And I know that you're also a 2019 fellow for the Sacred Rights Public Scholarship and Religion Group. And I'm talking to everybody from this cohort. And so as a podcaster who's interested in religion, I care a ton about public scholarship and making the work of experts accessible to the wider world, helping um, folks like you get your work out there into the ears of people so that it's not just like locked up in academic tomes and articles that people can't access. So I love having uh, that kind of stuff on this show. Um, so as far as public scholarship goes, how and why did you become interested in pursuing this particular opportunity with sacred rights? For me, I was interested in participating in sacred rights, particularly because when we think of a public intellectual, very often it's not a black woman. Mm. Uh, we're allowing for more space for different voices to be heard, but black women are still marginalized. And so I wanted to find ways that I could be a part of a conversation. And for me, it's important that my research be heard, not just by any public, but I always try to write for the women that I'm interviewing. I want them to see themselves in their stories and not have to pay like $100 for a textbook that honestly, it's just a coffee table. <laughs> mm -hmm. It has no other purpose. And I, what I've noticed through my own public scholarship is it circulates a lot more than anything else. I wrote my dissertation. I check the stats on it. I get an email every month for it. It's been downloaded 200 times. Mm -hmm. My public scholarship through retweets thousands of times, and mm. it's reaching people in a lot more meaningful ways. So one of the downsides, unfortunately, is um, the academy has been slow to embracing public scholarship as a form of real scholarship. Mm -hmm. So I love that Sacred Rights provides a space for 
scholars, regardless of their standing in the field, to say this matters, this is important, this is something that everybody should be doing. Absolutely. Like, as I've been talking to the fellows, they've had a lot of good things to say about the training as well. Um, I know that you all went through some workshops or something, didn't you, for, for making your writing like accessible for like uh, digestible shorter pieces, right? We went through workshops. We got to meet with editors from different organizations of the conversation, religious news services. We had an op-ed workshop. We had a workshop on doing live work. So getting interviewed on podcasts. And on so it was very, very, very expansive. And I really enjoyed so it. I love that. Um, and so whenever I was looking through your work, I noticed that you have this fantastic project that I want to know a ton about. And I think it's like won awards and all kinds of great stuff. And you've been working on it for several years and um, you're turning this project, which is called the Black Islam Syllabus into a website, into a YouTube channel. And, you know, a syllabus project is so cool because it gathers together different resources that helps people to dissect uh, the nuance within very very interesting topics. And I remember the Charleston syllabus um, being very popular several years ago, and I love that project a lot. So I'm curious about the Black Islam syllabus that you have curated. Can you tell me a little bit about the inception of this project? Yeah, so I have to give thanks to Professor Najiba Saeed and Muslim Arga. They were kind of the inspirations behind the project. Professor Saeed tweeted out how she wished she could find some resources on Black Muslims for her class and asked if anybody had anything. Um, at the time, I was just starting doing my dissertation work, and I did have all of these sources. So I offered to post them up on Twitter. I came up with a hashtag. Didn't really expect anybody to retweet it, mm -hmm. but people ended up giving their own recommendations. Uh, I had so many that I ended up putting it in a Google Doc page that Stapolo Square and Muslim Arc have helped me circulate for the past almost five years. And right now, I'm going to say it's close to 40 pages. I think it's about 38 pages. Yeah, that sounds right. I was looking at it this morning, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so I cool. In a while. Yeah, thank you. And well, another thing that's really interesting to me is like whenever you just said, I didn't expect for it to get any traction or retweets or anything like that. Um, it's just that one thing, isn't it, that that sets people off on Twitter and all of a sudden it just your account just blows up out of nowhere. I mean, that had to have felt really good to put that out there into the world and to uh, have it get such a remarkable response, wouldn't you say? It didn't. The thing that's so wild to me is that four and a half years later, I still get emails from people with suggestions, but telling me that they're using it. Um, I talked to someone, they said that they created a reading group around it. Every Black History Month in Ramadan, it gets recirculated a lot. So it's great to hear that nearly five years later, people are still finding it useful and then using as inspiration for their own syllabi. So there is the Islamophobia is racism syllabus that um, was partially inspired by the Black Islam syllabus, as well as the Sudan syllabus that was created by Razan Idris, which I think is really great. Awesome. Well, you know, and I was looking through the syllabus yesterday and perusing all 38 pages, as you said, and I, for myself, found a world of possibilities for future learning opening up in front of my very eyes as I was looking at it because there is so little on the list that I have ever read or seen or experienced. And I mean, I've read a little bit about the life of noble Drew Ali and Judith Weisenfeld's work 
and I've discussed the lives of black Muslim women uh, with Sylvia Chan Malik. Uh, I've read a little bit of Mustafa Bayoumi and the, um, some fashion work with uh, Elizabeth Bucar, who you also know. But this syllabus is largely unknown territory for me, and it gave me, um, you know, several ideas for episodes on Sufism that were just flying through my head as I was reading your syllabus. And it also showed me just how underrepresented Islam is on my podcast as well. You know, I was thinking about like, oh my gosh, there's so much discussions here to have. And I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about the incredible scope of this project and how you decided to, to categorize it because the categories within the document are super diverse and powerful. So that happened organically. When it first started, it did lean heavily towards the Western Hemisphere, especially the Americas, that, because that's primarily where my expertise is in. But as I got more suggestions from across the country and the globe, I realized that this was something that needed to be as expansive as possible. So in my free time, when I was not doing field work, <laughs> I would try to find as much stuff as possible. So Google Scholar is a great tool for that. I want it partly through the syllabus for people to see how expansive Islam is and how important Black Muslims have been to the global Muslim experience. And partly I wanted to encourage and push scholars and journalists to take Black Muslims seriously. There's absolutely no reason you should be writing on Islam, especially in the United States, and not include Black Muslims, if not outright sentiment. And I see that happening um, with journalists, but also in the classroom, where if you do talk about Black Muslims in an Islamic studies classroom, it's usually for a day, and it's either Bilal or it's the Nation of Islam, and mm. then you just, you're done with it. And that was something that I really wanted to encourage people to recognize why that might be, the anti-Blackness that we see in academy, but also in media, and what it would look like to have scholarship that truly centered black Muslims. Mm. Well, and there's like a wide range as well. So um, something that's so interesting about it is that you have academic journal articles, you have peer reviewed books, and then you also include blogs and songs and YouTube videos and zines and hashtags. And I I'm curious about why, um, you know, when you were putting this project together, um, why you included such a wide range of materials and how maybe you see those being incorporated into modern classrooms as well? Well, I think that we have to understand that there are multiple ways of learning and you do a disservice by just privileging academic books and articles. Some of the most important lessons I've ever learned was through Tumblr mm. and Twitter, listening to people who have been prevent it from entering the academy because of some of the gatekeeping that happened. So I wanted to highlight the work that's being done and the scholarship that is being done by scholars outside of the academy. But also uh, one thing that you do notice if you go through the bibliography, a lot of the pieces on Black Muslims are not actually written by Black Muslims. Mm -hmm. And so by including more pop culture articles and poems and movies and music, I can center Black Muslim creators themselves. And so mm -hmm. that was something that was really important to me too. Um, do you have any, like, say somebody knows nothing 
right? And they're, and they're hearing our conversation right now and they're like, okay, this sounds fascinating. I want to start with a few things that are digestible um, from the syllabus. Do you have any like top recommendations that you would suggest a brand new learner who's just coming to it that they might check out first? So a classic book, um, I'm a bit biased because he was my doctoral advisor, but is Richard Turner's Islam and the African-American Experience. Mm -hmm. and he was one of the first scholars to look at the relationship between um, Black Americans and Black Caribbeans and the Ahmadiyya movement in the United States. So I think that's really good. Uh, Judith Weisenfeld's new book that you brought up, New World mm -hmm. Coming, is really good. An author that I would totally look out for is Vanessa Taylor. Mm -hmm. She writes a lot of great pop culture pieces that deal with surveillance and policing, but also the experiences of being a Black Muslim woman in a Midwestern context and beyond. And I would also, there's a really cool one, it's called The Politics of Black Hair and Hijab by Marjorie Aziza Hill. Uh, she is one of the founders of the Muslim Anti-Racist Coalition and the piece Black Politics, The Politics of Black Hair and Hijab really talks about how Islam is experienced differently depending on who you are, um, whether you're Black or a non-Black woman of color down to skin color and hair. So I think that's a great piece. Awesome. Those are some great suggestions. And that's actually where I'm going to start because um, I have read A New World to Come by Judith Weisenfeld, but the other ones are new to me. Um, so thank you. So um, has the project, you mentioned earlier this, that it's been organic in nature, uh, developing and changing all the time with the passage of time and as new work comes into being, have you seen it um, like grow? Like, are you still seeing people engage with it today as it's been, you know, going on for four or five years now? Yes, uh, especially because it's Ramadan. So I'm getting a lot of people retweeting it. This, I think it was either this semester or last semester, I was invited to do a virtual lecture at Wake Forest to talk about the syllabus. The Black Muslim Psychology Conference honored uh, my work with the Black Islam syllabus last year at the conference. I won one of the Trailblazer Awards. So I am seeing more people using it, but I think for me, because it's getting so old, I wanna take it to another level, make it a bit more accessible. It's a Google Doc, so you really do have to scroll through mm. to see where everything is. And I think I can make it more accessible through a website, but also giving people the opportunity to learn more and virtually meet some of the writers and academics that I have their work on this. So the goal is by the end of the year to have a website and then a YouTube channel where I would interview scholars of black islam about their work wonderful so is the youtube channel uh does it does it have anything on it yet no okay <laughs> you're still working on it in. yes that's so cool is it going to be like a split screen interview uh like like with uh like say how you and i are doing right now how i can see you and you can see me and is it going to be a, an interview style show like that or are you going to planning on being in the same room with people how are you going to structure it i would like to do the split screen just because it's easier I'm moving to Cincinnati, which is a bit more central, but still hard to travel around. Yeah, yeah. So, and I'm taking inspiration from, I have to point out, Sapelo Square has been a great resource, which was founded by Suad Abdul-Kabir. So that's another cool book that you should put on your list as Muslim Cool by her. Nice. Awesome. I'm excited for your, for your project. I was just uh, kind of tweeting back and forth with Megan Goodwin and Elise Morgenstein first this morning um, about their show, Keeping It 101. And... 
you know, I, I fully believe that the more of these types of uh, digital resources that we can get out into the world, the better, because you never know who's going to find it and you never know what kind of impact it's going to make over time. And so everybody's like, why would you do another podcast or why would you do another YouTube channel? There's so many of those, but so what? You know what I mean? It's not your work. And so uh, the intrinsically, the intrinsic motivation behind doing something that features work that you care about and love is going to transfer over to your audiences in so many ways. It's going to be so cool. Thank you. So have you heard from any professors or teachers that have used your syllabus in their own classrooms? And because I'm, I'm curious what that feedback has been like from them. Yes, I've heard from professors and students all over the world. Some people, probably the biggest use is helping people create their comprehensive exams list. Mm. So um, most humanities and social science graduate students have to come up with a list of books or articles they'll read and then be tested on to show that they're experts. And a lot of times with Islamic studies, but even the field of American religions, Black Muslims are marginalized and it I will say for me it's easy to find the stuff because this is what I do all mm -hmm. my life but if you're an outsider and you just want to diversify your knowledge you really do sometimes have to dig pretty deep mm. uh, it's getting a lot better now say since about 2016 or 2017 there have been so many new scholars that have come out or older scholars who have published new books but so graduate students use it a lot and I've seen it used a lot in intro to Islam courses by professors recognizing that they need to talk about Muslims and not just black Muslims in the United States, black Muslims on the African continent, um, the black companions of the prophet Muhammad and their influence. And so that's something that's really exciting for me. The more I hear back from people, it helps me restructure the syllabus, create new categories. So the African continent uh, category did not always exist I had nice. in different things. And then I realized there were some people who just wanted to know about Africa. Awesome. Well, let's, let's move on a little bit to some of the work that you've done as well. Um, I know you have a book project that is in the works um, and you have an article out in the conversation uh, called the black Muslim female Fa fashion trailblazers who came before model Halima Aden. Did I say her last name correctly? Aden? It's adding, but yeah. Um, and so this article's out, um, and I read it yesterday, and I really liked it. And this is also the topic of your forthcoming book, I believe. Um, so, for, first of all, just to remind listeners, if they've never heard of this person, who is Halima Aden, and why does she matter in the context of Islamic studies and fashion studies? Well, so Halima is a first of a number of things. So she. Uh, most recently was the first hijabi to be in Sports Illustrated for their swimsuit um, edition, which is their biggest edition of the year. She has also appeared in Kanye West, um, his fashion show. Mm. She was the first hijabi to be Miss Minnesota USA, and that's how she actually got her career started. So she has become very popular on the runway as well as in print magazines. So very, very expansive. And I think she's important to black fashion as well as Muslim fashion and American fashion because of she's drawing from this very, very long legacy of women. So she is not the first Muslim woman to ever be a model. Um, we can go back 30 and 40 years, probably one of the most famous models is Iman. 
Hmm. who is also Somali and is very open about her Muslimness, but because she does not always wear a hijab, that's sometimes left out of the story. So Halima, she has been in the game for 2016, but one thing I wanted to do with the article is show that she is building off of this legacy of Black women that began in the 1940s. And what's central to the story about Black Muslim fashion is the nation of Islam. And unfortunately, they're often left out of our conversations about Islam in the United States. So what are some fashion trends that started in the 1940s and kind of carried us up until the present day? What's that timeline look like? So one thing a lot of the women um, I interview will tell me is that they actually were the ones who made wearing the hijab cool and acceptable in the Mm. United States. So if you look at the history of Islam in the U.S., the first Muslims here were Black, and they were brought over as enslaved um, Africans. Most of the religious practices died out. There are some practices you can still see in the Sea Islands, so like the Georgia, Carolina coastal area, Mm -hmm. but most of it came back in the early 1900s. And so Black Muslim women were the first hijabis in the U.S., Um, more than likely. So you see that one thing is the different headscarf styles, so the turbans, which no one will be able to see this in the podcast, but I'm wearing a turban, so think of Ilhan Omar. Mm-hmm. That comes from um, a Black American context, but it's also global. The different layering techniques that are in style with mainstream fashion now, so wearing skinny jeans and then a dress, or um, different layering with your tops. You might have a blazer and then a long sleeve shirt on. So that comes from a Black Muslim context. Interesting. Well, and I know that your book focuses on this as well. Can you describe a little bit about the scope of your book and kind of how you have the book organized in your in your mind and on paper? Yeah, so I'm looking at, it's a mix of history and ethnography. So doing interviews with some of the pioneers of fashion as well as newcomers. And it's looking at how Black Muslim women use fashion to challenge white supremacist beauty standards, but also to challenge the Arab centrism that you sometimes see in American Islam. So using their clothed bodies to push back against these narrow definitions of what it means to be a beautiful woman, but also what it means to be a Muslim woman in the U.S. So the first chapter, I start off with the Nation of Islam and looking at the role that uh, their uniforms and their business model played in helping to create the modern, modest fashion industry in the U.S. The second chapter, which I'm writing right now, uh, looks at fashion shows, Muslim fashion shows in the United States. Awesome. And there are some that go back to the 80s that are still happening now, which is really cool. Awesome. Um, The third chapter looks at African print, so like kente cloth and wax cloth and looking at how people use that to create kind of a pan-African Muslim identity. And then the fourth chapter is looking at social media influencers, particularly on YouTube and Instagram. And then the fifth chapter is looking at, despite the fact that Black Muslim women, particularly um, rooted in Americas, have laid a foundation for the modest fashion industry and Islamic fashion industry in the United States, but they haven't been able to break into the mainstream as much as their non-Black counterparts. So looking at how, despite all of their history, anti-Blackness still holds them back a lot. 
Mm. You know, I was thinking about a question that I wanted to ask you about the history of uh, Islam within the last 20 years, but I'm thinking of a different way. I'm thinking about this question now in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you can explain in your view how learning about this history um, will make our country a little better for everybody. Like if we all took a little bit of time to learn a little bit about um, this overlooked history, um, how might it make our society a little more united and a little more um, better for everybody? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I don't know if I necessarily have an answer for it, partly because I don't see my research as being interested in those kind of things. So when I write, I write two and four black Muslims and Mm. black people in general. So what I would hope is that black non-Muslims would see is how much they have in common with black Muslims. If you talk to a black person in the United States, more likely than not, they have a cousin or a friend or somebody in their family that they know um, who is Muslim and they love them, but they might still have some underlying Islamophobia. So seeing the connections with clothing, uh, what the Nation of Islam was doing in the 30s and 40s was much like the Baptist movement that you saw Black women doing in the South as well as in the North. Seeing how um, Muslims are oppressed and how that is interconnected with Black Christianity and how sometimes they're oppressed. So I'm thinking about a number of years ago, there were a wave of Black churches that were burnt down. And the first people to step up to support and fundraise were black Muslims because they understood that shared connection. So I think that would be the thing that I would want people to take away is the shared history and recognizing that there's a good chance if you are a black American, a descendant of enslaved Africans, that you had an ancestor or two that was Muslim. So connecting with that, but also recognizing even if you're not Muslim, so much of American pop culture is influenced by Islam. So if you are a rap fan or any fan of any part of hip hop culture, you are connected to Islam in some way. Islam is probably the religion of hip hop. Mm, Say more on that. So a lot of the most popular rappers, many of the early innovators were Muslim or are Muslim. So whether that's Rakim or Buster Rhymes or Ice Cube, that way, um, if you're looking at some of the grandfathers of hip hop, so the last poets who were founded um, a year after Malcolm X's assassination, I believe, they saw themselves as carrying on his legacy. You see a lot of language that draws from the five percenters, the nations of gods of earth. So if you have ever heard drop in science or what up G, that's coming from the five percenters. And just looking at the role that Louis Farrakhan has played with um, rappers in the 90s, as well as the image of Malcolm X, who you can see across all different genres from public enemy to Nicki Minaj. Oh, that's great. I love it. I love, I'm a huge music fan. So anytime I can weave music into my podcast about religion, I'm so all about that. You have to read Suad Abdul-Kabir's book. That's what it's about is hip hop. And she looks at New York as well as Chicago. So what's, what's like the it. title of the book? Muslim Cool. 
Awesome. Okay. That's, that is like number one priority. That just shot to the top of my list. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cause I know a friend of mine who's going to love it too. And I'm going to email him after we get off the phone and I'm going to tell him about this book. Cause I guarantee you, he is going to freak out. All right. Oh my God. So, yeah, it's great. It's great. And he's like a musical historian. He's like an encyclopedia. So I'm so excited. He probably already has read it and he's probably gonna be like, um, where have you been dude? Um, so I'm excited. So um, what are you working on next? Like, what are some, um, you know, we're talking about public scholarship. But we're also talking about academia and we know you have a book coming out. So um, what is coming next? Like, what's your timeline for all these projects that you have in the works? So hopefully by the end of the summer, the Black Islam syllabus, the website will be launched and then I'll be reaching out to academics uh, and writers to see if they're interested in being interviewed. So I've already asked people for suggestions on Twitter. I'll probably do that again. Hopefully the book will be fully written in uh, by the end of the year. So unfortunately, the virus has slowed things down. Mm. I'm an ethnographer and I do archival work. And I was in New York City two days before the shutdown happened in Harlem. So a lot slower than I expected. The next goal for me is to focus uh, on a public scholarship project that I started a few years ago, but put to the side and then a book to go with it. So I have something called Mapping Malcolm's Boston, which traces Malcolm X's life uh, in Boston from about 1941 to 1953. Awesome. It's great. It's Boston is the last, is the place where his last standing childhood home is hmm. in Roxbury. So what I did is I took pictures of places that were important to his political and religious development using primarily his autobiography, Manny Marable's book, and a few other sources, took pictures of what it looks like now, and then went into archives to find pictures of what it looked like when he was alive and living there. And so it's a story about his life, but it's also a story about gentrification and urban renewal in Boston, specifically Roxbury in the South End. A lot of the places that he talks about in the autobiography, so where he learned how to Lindy Hop, where he met one of his diverse girlfriends, it no longer exists. It's been bought up by universities and it's been gentrified. So I'm gonna continue working on that and then hopefully write a book on his relationship with his oldest sister, Ella Little Collins, who was his religious mentor in a number of ways as well as political uh, mentor. She was actually the one who funded his hajj after he was suspended from the Nation of Islam. And she's mm largely been written out from a lot of our narratives. If you've ever seen the Malcolm X movie by Spike Lee, you notice she's nowhere to be found. Mm. Could you see that book being a trade press book? Um, I don't know yet. So I like trade presses because they get a lot of circulation, uh, but sometimes they're a bit expensive. And I would want this to be something that is really affordable for people. So if I can find a trade press that is a bit cheaper to publish i'd be interested in that but i also want to do not just a biography of her and her relationship with malcolm x but looking at why she's missing from a lot of the archives and stories so do some theorizing there so i think it might be i think it could go either way whether it's trade press or academic i think whoever can help me get it out to the most people for the cheapest price Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Kayla Wheeler, your work is so fascinating. I'm so excited for your channel and your website. That's going to be so cool because this syllabus, bringing it to life even more is just going to create 
the supplementary sources within this fantastic bibliography. Like if I can look at a citation on your syllabus and then click a link underneath it to see you interviewing the person who wrote it, it's just going to take it to the next level. And I'm so excited to hear that. So where can people find you if they want to stay up to date on what it is that you're doing? Yeah. So I have a website. It's my name all together. So Kayla Renee Wheeler.com. And there you can find some writings I've done as well as a link to the black Islam syllabus in the Google doc uh, format now. And once the website is up, I'll also have a link to it there. You can also find me on Twitter at KRW18. Awesome. Well, Dr. Dr. Kayla Wheeler, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I'm super grateful to you for your time um, during your writing of your, of your forthcoming book. So thank you for taking a little bit of time to chat with me about sacred rights, about public scholarship, about this book that I'm going to read, um, Muslim Cool. This is great. And uh, I'm just really grateful to you for your time today. So thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.